Welcome back to the arbitration station. Uh, quite possibly the worst arbitration clause I've ever read in my life. Okay, ready? One, two, three. English. Russia. Oh, <laughs> well, of course. He's going to get disbarred in two seconds after all of that. Yeah, so if I were the sole arbitrator... It's called, give him the old razzle-dazzle, Joel. You just, you know, if it sounds good, maybe they won't... Let's equal to... Arriba. Hola y bienvenidos a la Arbitration Station. Yo me llamo Brian Karek. Y yo soy Joel Dorcas Kulborg. Y nosotros somos vuestros presentadores por nuevo episodio del podcast Arbitration Station que cubre ambos arbitraje comercial y de inversión. 66% de materia seriosa y 33% de reflexiones generales del mundo de arbitraje. Where in the world are you, Brian? Spain. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> I am in London. Where in the world are you, Joel? Still in Copenhagen. You'll be traveling. I will I will be like Chris Rea. I will be driving home for Christmas in oh, a few hours. Nice. That's one of my favorite Christmas songs actually. I like uh Baby It's Cold Outside. No, you don't. <laughs> I do. You do? For, yeah, I thought the... that I thought that was banned from <laughs> circulation. It's actually a really bad, uh, awful song. So yeah, um... it's Google it. <laughs> oh, we should also thank IA Reporter, the uh, sponsor for this season of Arbitration Station. IA Reporter is an online service focused on international investment law. For more than 10 years, iReporter has offered up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. iReporter's team of expert analysts offer informed and incisive analysis as well as investigative reporting on cases and developments that are otherwise confidential. To find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to iReporter, visit iReporter.com. And also, follow iReporter on Twitter because then you'll you'll see uh, among other things tweets about the arbitration station or at least one <laughs> a singular tweet when <laughs> the editor by reporter was out driving in the California desert listening to the arbitration station yeah some people listen to James Dean or or the flash the clash and he's listening to the arbitration station right the desert friendly podcast <laughs> So the reason for our Spanish introduction, and we'll see if we'll do another one in Russian or Finnish or whatever uh, in the in the future, is that this is more or less the Brian Kotick show. Unfortunately, Joel will be taking a backseat this episode. That's that's correct. But we and I just handed you the keys and you decided to turn it into a Spanish speaking podcast in my absence. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> While the cat's away, the mice speak Spanish. <laughs> We have a great episode for you guys today. We have two guests coming from Latin American countries, but now reside in London, uh, who will be enlightening us on some Latin American adjacent uh, issues. First, we have Gloria Alvarez, who's an academic at Aberdeen, and well, she's an academic and a lecturer at Aberdeen University. She also serves as arbitrator and as a legal expert in international arbitration. She will be talking about the modernization of the ECT in light of ACMEA. Um, she'll kind of demystify and demythify um, the effect of ACMEA or the lack thereof on the ECT, but um, also kind of go into how the ECT secretariat is functioning in modernizing um, the legal instrument as such. 
Um, then we will move on to Manuel Casas, who is from Venezuela. Gloria is from Mexico. We'll move on to Manuel Casas from Venezuela, who's a senior associate from Wilmer Hale. Uh, working on the uh, grand scale of arbitration disputes, he does public international law disputes and non-contentious matters. Um, he works in international commercial arbitration as well as investment arbitration. He started out in Venezuela and moved over to Europe uh, to work at the ICJ and then just moved to London a few years ago. So he will be talking about from his experience at the ICJ, he'll talk about a couple of cases that have come up recently in the ICJ that have involved Latin American countries, but he's really going to just tease out some general principles of in public international law or international law um, that kind of affect investment arbitration, or they don't. Um, we will see. Then the two of them will join forces and join us in the Happy Fun Time segment, uh, which they have translated for us into Spanish, so uh, look out for that. Um, they will talk about the Latin American community in international arbitration. You know, every firm has these LATAM uh, groups and, and organizations within their firms. So what does that really mean? What's the role of Latin America abroad? And what are the role of Latin American lawyers back in their home jurisdictions in Latin America? So um, it is an, a riveting episode and um, a lot to look forward to. Yeah, are they coming to your office, both of them? Yes, we'll be in the same room. So audio, nice. audio purists, beware. <laughs> yeah, but I won't be there, which I guess is an improvement audio-wise and probably substance-wise as well. <laughs> no, I think everyone's going to miss you. Everyone's going to really miss you, Joel. But you have your thesis to finish, so you have to focus. Yes, the date is set and the opponent and the board is, as far as I know, also set. So now I, I can really, or I'm supposed to see, I should say, the end of the tunnel, the light in the tunnel. And it's a public defense, right? Yeah, exactly. So, so I won't give any dates here, lest there be some nerdy other doctoral student who <laughs> shows up and questions me. There will be a line around the block. They're like, what is this club? And like, no, it's Joel's <laughs> dissertation. <laughs> That's exactly. <laughs> I haven't been in Uppsala, the, the town where my faculty is located. I haven't lived even close to Uppsala for many years and have barely been in Uppsala. So Are you excited? I, I highly doubt the turnout will be crazy. Uh, yeah, of course I'm excited. Uh, it's like giving birth. I'm just waiting for it to, to happen. I also have to finish the thing, of course, but I'm looking forward to it. Congratulations in advance. Mm, don't jinx it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what else is new? Before I check out Drive to Sweden and get my doctorate, we should probably just touch base. We we don't we don't talk anymore. I know we don't really. Um partly because I don't want to. No, but I uh it's Christmas time. I mean I'm Jewish, but let's uh, all celebrate Christmas cheer. We agreed holidays last year around. Happy season's call greetings if you really want to get <laughs> bland about it um do you have any good christmas arbitration gifts that you would give out well i don't but now that you mention it i wasn't thinking about doing it myself um egil the european journal of international law they have a great blog called egil talk and they do what we did last year and uh, where some of their i think the editors of the blog get a carte blanche to uh, share their favorite readings from the past year, including novels and classics and things that were not written during 2018, but things that they personally discovered. And it's it's a good mix of uh, international law-related stuff and just general good reading. So I recommend going to the EGIL blog and, and check that out rather than 
us having to improvise unless you have some good legal holiday gift. Uh, no, I, I refrain from, from giving such gifts. Uh, <laughs> I'll give a subscription <laughs> to iReporter to the first person to email the arbitration station as a holiday gift. No, I, um, I'll, I'll be, um, this sounds really pretentious, but I'll be volunteering during the Christmas season because I am staying in, in London for Christmas. I uh, will be an orphan. I'll be staying here for New Year's. Um, luckily, London is obsessed with throwing Christmas parties, um, both you know for your company, but also for the public. A lot of people do, um, you know, their company will throw a Christmas party and invite the public or, you know, contacts of the firm or the company. So yeah. it's just, you know, Tuesday through Friday Christmas parties. Oh my God. Okay. Yes. It's ambitious. Yes. So it'll be a birthday gift to myself. Speaking of gifts, the who's who rankings are out. At least two weeks ago, they came out judging from my social media feeds. Right. Who, who is who? Are you who? I, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a who. I'm not a who yet. I'm, I'm living in Whoville, but I'm not, I'm not in who. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god okay i don't have anything to say about this because it's obviously not something that i'm mainly concerned with because it's a ranking primarily it seems of private practice lawyers and oh. something that is important for people who are climbing the law firm ladder which i made a very major point out of not doing do you know the um the process in in applying no Okay, uh, so I think we, no, no. We when we were in Sydney, we talked about this, but then we talked about the law firm rankings and not the individual ones. Exactly, right? but I think with who's who, you have to apply, or you have. I think you have to apply, or you have to get nominated, and then someone sends you like an application. But you yourself have to apply, and you have to get recommendations not only from colleagues but also from clients. Um, Ooh, okay. And I know some people that have that would have been great who's whoers. Um, but they, <laughs> uh, but they could not because the clients that they work with a are too, um, you know, high profile. They're not going to ask, you know, the president of a government or something to write their their who's who application recommendation. Um, how I mean, I guess you could contact counsel or something. But I know some people that it was just not a practical exercise um, to do that. I do not know if you have to pay. Um, no, you you don't. Okay. This up, and I didn't have to look very hard because there are basically huge banners on the website saying we don't accept money for this. Right. <laughs> so I think we are not the first ones to ask this cynical question. So they are uh, way ahead of of people like us and really making the case. They they don't take money for for this service. So let's not be bitter about the fact that neither of us has been. <laughs> Right. I also think it's a seniority thing. I think it's a seniority thing. I think <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a, yeah. a, a Scandinavians are, you know, not as represented as continental Europeans. So let's... Yeah, uh... yeah, yeah. You dig on further in your bag of excuses. <laughs> it's so true, though. It's so true. Watch me justify. Watch yeah. me justify. Uh, no, but with this podcast, we'll be thought leaders in no time. Now the church bells of downtown Copenhagen are saying it's noon can you hear them no i can't can you can you reenact them can you reenact them with your voice <laughs> but i thought that might be a good 
reason for me to check out and hand the, uh, the keys over to Latin American Brian Kodak. And welcome back. We are now sitting here with Gloria Alvarez with Manuel Casas on the side, but the main focus of this segment will be Gloria Alvarez, who is a lecturer in international arbitration at Aberdeen. Um, you also sit as an expert in um, investment treaty arbitrations. Uh, yes. And you also sit as an arbitrator. Yes. In commercial cases. Um, yes, at the moment, yes. Hopefully, okay. one day only investment treaty. Okay. Yeah, we all we all hope. <laughs> so, uh, what you're going to talk about today, and what we talked about in the introduction, is that you're going to talk about um, EU developments from the point of view of the ECT, including its modernization strategy. How did you come across this topic? Well, that's uh, well. First of all, thank you for inviting me. I am very, very happy to be here and share the mic, as people <laughs> say, uh, with uh, such a great idea as the arbitration station. I've been thinking that I will put it as a recommending material for my students. You should. Yeah, I will do it. Uh, but um, th that's a very good question. Uh, I guess the first time I started becoming interested on EU law issues. Well, first of all, I am from Mexico. So it is almost a request uh, for us to be very international. So a Mexican doing uh, things on Mexico is, will be quite obvious and boring. Right. So when I started uh, doing my PhD, I thought I should really, you know, uh, practice the principles of an arbitrator and being curious about EU law. So that's what I did. Uh, but very interesting, I remember once uh, approaching a professor of EU law saying, I'm going to do this research about EU law and uh, investment arbitration, 2013. He looked at me and he told me, are you telling me, which he thought I was Brazilian, are you telling me that a Brazilian can resolve an arbitration dispute on EU law issues? I'm like, yeah, that's what <laughs> we do every day. No, that is not possible, that is illegal. I don't know why he thought it was illegal. It's illegal discrimination. Yeah. On this part. <laughs> but that was um, perhaps the other side of, of, of the things, right? EU law scholars, EU law policymakers, and pretty much everybody that is in the EU law side feels like that, see things that way, and that was the best reason to do a PhD on this, because that is really the other side of the scenario. Um, so then I realized that BITs eventually will be over. And so I had to, I, it was 2013, it was, it was coming, it was obvious. So then I thought I need to do research in something that will allow me to start my academic career, you know, give me some income, at least for the next 10 years right. of my life. So then I chose specifically only to work on the Energy Charter Treaty, which uh, back then um, you only had uh, two cases, AES Summit versus um, Hungary and um, Electravel as well. And a lot of people think that ACMEA comes and changes the way we see intra-EU investment arbitration, but I guess that's the first uh, myth that I would like to break here. Yeah, go for it. Um, it was AES Summit, really. Well, there's another case, but it's an intra-EU BIT case, Binder versus Germany, if I'm not wrong. Mm -hmm. um, or maybe Binder versus uh, another member state. Uh, but really, AES Summit, uh, there is a very interesting expert opinion by Professor Pete Ikut. I think uh, now he teaches at UCL, but also is a professor somewhere in uh, Belgium. And Pete uh, really talks about the role of EU law coming into investment arbitration. 
Back then, the TFEU didn't exist. So he says, if things are going to change, things might look differently, but, but today, investment treaty law should prevail. And he's a EU law professor. Um, then you have this amazing uh, decision, decision on jurisdiction uh, on Electravel, where the arbitrators, uh, for then again, for some people, it, it was a mistake, but they really took the time to, to study what's EU law, what EU law means for us as a, an arbitration uh, community and as arbitration practitioners and decision makers. Um, so they spend a lot of time, they educate us, they try to do it at least right. um, on what it really is EU law it, that made a, a lot of EU scholars unhappy but it, it, it is what it is and that is really the starting point of all the problems it is not ACMEA it is Electravel for me at least for me because they really did make this treatment of what it means EU law and how it interacts with the investment treaty arbitration right um, but at that point, everyone was kind of on the same side, right? Yeah, well, back then, it was only perhaps Johnny Vida working on this, George Berman, you know, these very well-experienced arbitrators who feel comfortable about discussing very obscure topics, and they were just there. Um, well, and then you have the ACMEA people working on the case back then. But nobody, nobody really feels comfortable, and I don't think really people feel comfortable today, at least in the arbitration community, to fully explain what EU law represents for us. Right. Uh, so this is very interesting and very challenging and very technical and sometimes very boring. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, this is... So your monograph is going to be the most exhilarating piece of work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you for uh, uh, touching on that. So I did my PhD and now I'm making this uh, PhD and monograph because the ECT is modernizing itself then it is very hard for us to speculate or to you know, talk about the future. But it's interesting to see how the ECT, one way or another, is reacting. And that is not happening in an isolation. You, know, you have the multilateral investment court. You have ICSI trying to amend the rules. Mm -hmm. You have now the amendments on NAFTA. Um, so there is a lot of uh, revolution, if you want. There is a transformation on investment arbitration as we know it. And the ACT, I guess, they don't want to be uh, in the past. They want to contribute to that uh, amendment, to that transformation. Um, so it's hard for me to write the monograph. I'm finishing the monograph now. Uh, so I hope the ECT secretariat hurries up with whatever they are trying to do. So that you can include it. In yeah. <laughs> but uh, touching on that, moving perhaps on uh, what it is the ECT is trying to do, the secretariat. So they had a modernization um, activity or target and is divided into three phases. So the first one, what the ECT tried to do and did uh, very well is that they created the International Energy Charter. And very interestingly, they have other type of signatories. As a matter of fact, for example, later on you're going to talk about uh, Latin America. So Chile and Colombia are signatories of this International Energy uh, Charter instrument, uh, but it's just basically a document of good intentions. It's just a protocol. It has no binding effect. Uh, you know, just With reference to the ECT or a separate obligation? Well, the secretariat drafted it. Yeah. The ECT secretariat drafted it, but it's just a protocol that includes um, environmental issues, investment oh, issues, okay, okay. but it's just they're a big international instrument. But what is interesting is that you see 
new countries uh, wanted to be part of it. And I, I really want to highlight that is Chile and Colombia are part of, of this international energy document. Uh, I am aware that Guyana and Vietnam are the most recent signatories as well of this document. And I am aware as well that the ECT Secretariat has tried very hard to uh, encourage countries like Mexico to, to, be, to be part of this. Mm. So this document is already there, it's online, it's in the website of the ECT. And that, that was phase one of modernization. Okay. Then you are ticking one box there. Now the second phase is that without touching the treaty, the ECT Secretariat uh, started creating tools for governments and the industry, so for the state and the investor, to think let's, let's, how we can facilitate the understanding of international investment law, how we can do this. Uh, so they created a couple of tools related to mediation. If you see the ECT is creating a lot of workshops and training um, mm -hmm. in relation to ADR, which is great because that allows you to prevent disputes before going to investor state arbitration. Uh, the ECT has a very interesting provision on transparency, and they are trying to make more promotion of that transparency item. And there are other uh, soft law tools, as they call it. One of those, which I'm very happy that I participated, um, is, so the ECT created this thing called the Legal Advisory Task Force. And it's a group of practitioners, and they were very generous enough to invite and some academics, so I'm very privileged to be one of those. So this is, um, they created uh, many things, but two things that I participated on and that I'm able to speak about. They created these general provisions applicable to investment agreements. So basically it's like a handbook. Let's say you're a government official from a country that is starting to create new contracts, licenses in the oil and gas industry, renewables, you name it. So this handbook gives you very good guidance on what to put in a contract or what to put in an investment agreement. Um, I, I recommend you to, to have a look at it. Again, I, I recommend my students to, to have a look to this um, handbook. Uh, they also, aiming on transparency, they are uh, creating the first uh, set of all the ECT published uh, cases. Mm -hmm. So they are inviting a lot of then again practitioners, academics to draft one uh, summary of one award. So they, the ECT wants to publish their own set of um, ECT cases. So you know, so that they are they contribute to this uh, transparency aim. Now the third phase, which is the one that currently the Secretariat is working on, is called well, it's a potential revision on the ECT. Mm -hmm. um, what they are going to do? First of all, they say that they're going to get rid of obsolete provisions, which is interesting. I don't know which kind of provisions within the ECT are obsolete. Um, but they are also going to talk about, or they're going to look into issues that come often in ECT disputes, like the right to regulate. We all of, know, we, right. we all of us, we know that the right to regulate is always present there. So they want to perhaps uh, give more of a definition or discuss what it really means, the right to regulate, what it really means for an equitable treatment. Um, and something very interesting, which I find it a procedural issue, but the ECT wants to include it, and I don't know into what, what extent they can do that, because ICSI rules uh, Article 41.5 already has that, you know, claims without uh, legal merit. Mm -hmm. But the ECT wants to include something along the lines of uh, frivolous claims. 
I, I think that's very procedural. It's pretty far, yeah. Yeah, but the ICT is also including it. Um, they also want to co talk, of course, about TPF. Uh, you know, then again, you know, mirroring the exercise that ICSID is doing, um, right. security of cost. Uh, and very interesting, they want to include in more, in a clearer manner, um, sustainable development, social responsibility issues. Of course, very important, uh, climate change, you know, more specific. But Because today the problem, if you are an environmental or climate change person, the problem, in, and you, uh, people know that, is that you don't have specific provisions in investment treaties that guide the tribunal about how to protect third-party rights, so the rights of indigenous communities, mm -hmm. and the rights of environment, um, and so on and so forth. So the ECT has uh, highlighted uh, very importantly that they want to include that if they happen to modernize uh, the document. It sounds like the scope of the treaty is going to be extremely broad now. I mean... Now yeah. you have indigenous rights, you have renewables, you have all these things that are now going to be under the ECT. It's It seems like they're just trying to maybe get... Uh, clearly it's going to be more transparent and they're going to have more concrete provisions that parties can rely on, but it's almost like this should be a whole separate document. Indeed, it's, maybe it sounds like Mission Impossible yeah. now that I'm uh, discussing it. Um, but they have been always very ambitious. At the end of the day, the ECT is the only investment agreement on a specific... Uh, economic sector and that was uh, back then 20 years ago a great achievement so I don't see why they cannot do it again right of course you need more consensus and we are more divided uh, but I think something that uh, perhaps we have in common is um, the future which is uh, taking care of the environment you know it's something all of us we care well unless you are perhaps a president <laughs> from a <laughs> Country, from, from, a, country. from a big country <laughs> somewhere in an important continent but uh, otherwise I think all of us we have common things that we we, we care uh, we all of us we want to understand better what, how the right to regulate works uh, how fair and equitable treatment works for all for our clients yeah I mean, that, that's going to be a pretty big I mean do you know how far were you privy to those conversations they, no no I haven't participated in that modernisa modernization uh, talks but I think they're just starting so it's not going to be like the right or you know expropriation is now sole effects no, assessment yeah i hope not and i honestly i hope they take a very long time as well so i can finish my book before <laughs> they have a new treaty uh but at least so what i want to to tell your audience is at least they are trying and yeah. they are uh, joining efforts of everything else that is happening around them um very carefully, they are not really, they don't want to talk about EU law or the interaction of EU law because it's not, it shouldn't be in the treaty. However, something that they mentioned they want to refine or they want to talk about is the RIOs. So the RIOs uh, mean uh, Regional Economic Integration mm -hmm. Organization, which means, so these mem signatories of the ECT, which are more than one country. Mm -hmm. As we know, the EU is signatory of the ECT, so the EU is a ECT Rio. So what they want to discuss or refine is which provisions of the ECT will apply to Rios, because today all the treaty applies to the EU. Right. So maybe they are going to pick and choose. Maybe finally they are going to introduce a disconnection clause uh, between the EU and its own member states, which uh, you know has been an academic discussion, but is in a lot of the renewables cases. 
Um, I don't know. They just mention it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really don't know the scope of it, how far they, they will go. What about the applicable law being international law? Well, I mean, I don't know. I, I, I will expect that they will stick to it. I yeah. mean, it will be very... But they won't clarify in a separate document saying... Uh, I don't this know. This not I... to be further clarified by EU law. No, I don't. I don't know. Maybe I, I, it depends. You know, it depends how the drafting talks uh, yeah. go. Uh, I think that will be wrong. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, without taking a position on this podcast, yeah. I think so too. You can as an expert. No, no, no. <laughs> um, I can't take a position, but I, I think that will be inappropriate or will be reducing the scope of what you want to create sometimes with uh, investment treaties. Right. Um, but I, I think it's a great exercise. Um, I think it's important. I think that doesn't alleviate in any way uh, the problems that ACMEA has given us. Uh, ACMEA is there and ACMEA has contaminated the way we understand uh, the investment treaty practice. And that is very um, dangerous. Um, today, actually, I received on my inbox uh, this UNCTAD uh, fact sheet on intra-EU investor state arbitration cases. And this is one of the problems, for example, which of course this is a great exercise and is very well uh, written. But if you look into the, so they have a couple of tables and they tell you, they list all the cases and they tell you what are, what are these cases about. And they talk, this is one of the key problems about the intra-EU problem. People treat the same way they treat ACMEA as they treat all the renewables cases. The renewables cases are claims related to domestic changes. Has nothing to do with EU law. Mm-hmm. In famous cases like Mikula, ACMEA, Electravel, uh, they do refer to issues related to EU law. Those changes happen because the EU told to those member states to change something. Whereas in the renewables cases, that never happened. And that, then there is a problem of attribution there. Who's responsible, right? Mm-hmm. Is it the member state or is it EU? And, and the point that I'm trying to make is that you cannot put in the same pot all these cases. Even UNCTA in their report, they do have, later on they clarify that. They clarify, um, they have a different examples of measures of general application. They try to, so here's where the confusion starts. And then later on in table six, they try to make the difference. So cases related to EU law, cases related to domestic issues. But one of the key misconceptions and misunderstanding is that we are trying to treat the intra-EU problem altogether. And the renewables cases, I have always said, that has nothing to do with EU law. It's domestic issues, domestic problems, and therefore ACMEA should leave them alone. Mm-hmm. Because if the, the principle, what, what is the message of ACMEA? You cannot resolve issues of EU law outside the EU legal order. Right. The renewables cases are not about EU law issues. But I think a lot of council understand that, but I think the EC just refuses to yeah. understand that. Well, I mean, I have a very nice article that I just published. Uh, <laughs> well, it's nice because I did it, but not because it's nice in reality. That's what I think. But um, I, I, I call it from normative conflict to policy tension. The, the appreciation is that there is a normative conflict, but once you study it, you realize there is no normative conflict. Right. There is just a huge policy tension by uninformed uh, 
uninformed people coming from a very uh, small or little background on public international law, on investment law, as we know it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is where the policy tension comes from. And I don't know how or when this is going to stop. It might stop with a multilateral investment court. As I say, I tell my students, uh, you might be the newer generation and I might be an old generation. Like now we have to teach it in a different way. Right. And we are perhaps moving towards that, towards the end of international investment law as we know it, or as we learn it in, the, in our classroom or in, in the books. It's true. Uh, when you talk about this policy difference, uh, do you see anything coming from the member states that they want to renounce the ECT or that they are negotiating? Member states uh, have taken a very interesting position. They are silent, with the exception of Italy. Mm-hmm. Italy was very clear, I don't want to play this game anymore. I'm withdrawing from the ECT. But not even Spain has done that. Right. which is interesting. Poland is the third other country uh, most uh, sued under intra-EU ECT cases. Poland is quiet as well. Uh, I have to say, and I hope I, I don't uh, mean to insult uh, Polish policymakers, but Poland is not very active uh, in pro-renewables, pro-climate change, pro-environmental issues. Poland has taken a very um, conservative approach on that. Maybe similar to the U.S. <laughs> right. uh, We're actually going backwards, so... Yeah, <laughs> but I, so Poland is very interesting. But anyway, so no, everybody's very quiet. Member states are quiet, are very cautious. And I think it's because the ECT, at the end of the day, you have other signatories from other very important energy countries. Uh, you know, you have all the Central Asia signatories there. Um, so, I don't know. I think member states are just perhaps waiting that all these EU officials leave and new people comes and new new mindset comes. Right. Maybe, maybe hopefully. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but that is um, that is let's say the the landscape at least. You know, to understand the future of the ECT, you really need to understand the present. And I guess for me, the takeaway is that we really need to pin down and clarify what we mean when we say an intra-EU conflict. Right. There is no such a thing, there are jurisdictional tensions there, uh, but even uh, preliminary rulings, there are one way or another, there are ways to reach and uh, knock the door of the Court of Justice of the EU. If a dispute has nothing to do with EU law, I don't see what is really the problem. Um, and then again, the best example are the renewables cases against the Kingdom of Spain. Mm-hmm. Um, the ECT has a very interesting provision that I hope I can refer to it if I find it. I'm sorry, I don't know the ECT by heart yet. Uh, <laughs> but the ECT has a very... No, I what? don't. I'm sorry. Get out of here. But the ECT has a very interesting provision that talks about treaty conflicts. So, you know, like Vienna Convention, they say, what will happen if we are in conflict with another treaty? And uh, they say, well, whatever is best for the investor. That's what the provision says. Mm -hmm. And I really, I mean, I really encourage everybody listening to this to look into the ACT and find this provision, because I might not be able to find it before we finish. But. That is what the ECT says. says, in case of conflict with another treaty, whatever is more favorable to the investor. And I, I am fascinated by the fact that nobody talks about it. Nobody touches it. 
but don't, nobody touches it because it's easy to look into Vienna Convention because there is more investment treaty practice on the BCLT. Mm-hmm. Um, and that basically means nothing. Whatever is more favorable to the investor, well, what is more favorable to the investor? What about what is favorable to the member state, to the respondent? Um, so just we need to be more informed, more educated, uh, be more skeptical about taking positions about the intra-EU discussion, understand that ACMEA is not really the problem. It has been a long discussion that really comes from uh, Electravel. And um, try also to, at the end of the day, international arbitration is well known, and we know that we create persuasive arguments throughout decisions, throughout awards. So it is important to the power of the decision maker. I'm not saying that the decision maker has to go beyond their powers. I'm not Mm -hmm. saying that they have to misapply the law, but they really need to understand what is in front of them. Not only arbitrators, but also the disputing parties, because disputing parties love to confuse arbitrators and tell them this is an intra-EU issue, where it's not. Right. Uh, you say that uh, you know that because you're a practitioner. I, I, I think practitioners sometimes use the excuse, the shield of EU law to avoid, uh, you know, sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah, you know. If it helps their client. If it helps their client. Well, yeah. Well, if you were defending a state, wouldn't you? Yeah, exactly. Well, I have learned to take a more neutral position. I was very pro-state, but now I'm more neutral. Uh, yeah, but if you were our, our counsel for them in a case, probably uh, be plastering the tribunal with EU yeah. law defenses. Right. There are good sides for both. Yeah. For both. There are good arguments for the respondent, there are good arguments for the investor. Um, and then it's just really about uh, the mindset of your tribunal as well. Yeah, of course. And, well, and, and I think tribunals are being very cognizant of the fact that their decisions are now going to form part. It's almost like they're, they're writing parts of a doctrine on how this is all going to be interpreted, especially for the ECT, because there's been four cases that have come out recently and each decision is coming to be more and more developed and how they're reasoning for it if you look mm-hmm. at the Vattenfall decision I mean they they and went through questions. it in like laborious detail being like you know everyone's going to read this yes future tribunals are going to rely on this so we need to contribute to the discussion so by the way it's article 16 of the ECT okay I found it <laughs> <laughs> but yeah I mean I find that a very fascinating discussion um, I feel it has been contaminated a lot I see a, uh, even though you know I work in Kluber blog I see a lot of Agmea uh, uh, posts here yeah. and there not, not only in the blog but uh, which by the very way everybody is invited and very welcome to contribute uh, but you know you see it in GAR you see it in blog you see it in journals and I sometimes I get upset I'm like oh, confusing people <laughs> they're confusing the readers uh, yeah uh, so yeah all right well thank you for enlightening us on this discussion uh, and we'll see you in the third segment We are now sitting here with Manuel Casas from Wilmer Hale in London. We all hail from London today. Uh, you've been at Wilmer Hale for a couple of years now, uh, focusing, not really focusing because you do it all, public international law, investment treaty arbitration, and also commercial arbitration. Um, but you may be seen as a public international law lawyer because of your previous experience at the ICJ, which kind of leads us in the discussion that we're going to have today. Or some people would say I'm simply a, a repurposed domestic Venezuelan administrative lawyer. Uh, <laughs> you know, one tries to go along. 
but you're going to talk to us today about some ICG cases that have come up recently that kind of reinterpret based general principles yeah. of international law, but that have a the parties are in Latin America, which feeds into our theme of this episode. Yes, and, and and there's another issue that I think is is topical, and we could discuss maybe before we enter into the cases. Yeah, and it's the you know the relatively recent uh, comment by the president of the court by by Judge Yusuf on the court's decision not to allow sitting judges from acting as arbitrators yeah. in in investment cases. And I, I know you had an episode of the podcast on this topic, so I, I don't want to be redundant. However, that was pre-decision. It was pre-decision, so, yeah. Uh, I, I have relatively strong views on this, actually. I, I think it's... I understand the concerns. I understand that now that the court is relatively busier than it has been in the past, the at least for public perception, the idea that judges are some way taking on other obligations which would impede them from fulfilling their obligations at the court 100% is, is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Personally, I don't think that was the case, and I think it's actually a very significant loss for international law in general, for international dispute settlement specifically, and particularly for investor state arbitration. I think that any decision that deprives a means of, of you know, dispute resolution from some of the leading minds in the field is slightly sad. Um, uh, I, I think there could have been more nuanced ways of avoiding the perception that judges are, you know, too busy way arbitrating uh, to pay attention to their cases, which, again, at least I honestly think was never the case with, with anyone, right. uh, without necessarily, you know, depriving the international arbitration sphere from their input and, and collaboration. And, you know, if you look at the list of decisions that ICJ judges either during or after they've been on the bench have have worked on it. It's a long list, and it's I think they've really contributed to the development of international investment law. And now, well, now we'll have to wait until they retire, and hopefully right. they they have a long life and they retire relatively young, so we can still uh, have their input afterwards. But you know, if if you look at, you know, admittedly, if you look at. Dame Russell and Higgins, you have decisions like Amco Asia, then you have James Crawford with judgment. Admittedly, these were maybe before he joined the court, but you have Waste Management B Mexico, mm-hmm. which has a famous dictum on, on the Nell of Justice. Mm-hmm. Yes. You have you know, Peter Tomka, who's arguably one of the most prominent arbitrators from, from Eastern Europe, and he has you know, seminal decisions like the annulment uh, decision on, on Fraport B Philippines. You have, again, Ju- Judge Yusuf, which could arguably be said to be the most prominent uh, African arbitrator at the moment. I know he would be fighting for the title with Ahmed El Kosheri, but I think uh, <laughs> now with the precedent of the ICJ under his belt, I think the the nod goes to Judge Yusuf in that battle. And those are decisions we that we may be deprived from having similar contributions to the field in the near future because of this. Um, having said that, 
it is a concern. And it happens in domestic courts. You don't see Supreme Court justices or judges uh, going away and arbitrating or deciding other disputes. Although admittedly, if you look at the number of cases, it is, and particularly if you look at the number of cases, uh, the cases to judge ratio, the ICJ is a big bench, it's 15 judges. And yes, it's busy right now, however, by any comparison to a domestic court, the caseload is still quite manageable. It's not even, it's not, it's not facing 40 or 80 cases that are backlogged, I think. Uh, and people who, the judges of the court, particularly the ones who also want to work as arbitrators, I think it's, it's fair to say that they have a very strong work ethic. And that if they are taking arbitrator work, it's because they feel that they can do justice both to their judicial commitments at the court and to their commitments as, as arbitrators. And if, if push comes to shove, I'm sure they would have self-regulated in a way that they would have stopped taking appointments. Or in a worst case scenario, if, if push comes to shove, they would have even considered resigning from a panel if, if that was required to give the proper attention to the, to the court's casework. Mm. Well, let's hop into these cases that you've prepped for us. Yeah, so I, I, I wanted to discuss three relatively recent cases uh, that have been decided by the ICJ, which, although they do not discuss specifically topics that one at first glance would think are related to investment arbitration, have at one point or another touched upon general principles of international procedural law or substantive law that would be relevant or could potentially be relevant for, for arbitration. So I want to start by, by the most recent one, and it's the Bolivia-Chile case. Now, the, as most of you should know, uh, Bolivia is a landlock, landlocked country, and it's the only land, landlocked country in, in Latin America and has had, they've been attempting to have access to the ocean for, for a long time. And after several decades of, of negotiations and, and diplomatic dealings, they decided to initiate proceedings against Chile, basically saying that Chile has an obligation to negotiate with them how to obtain an access to the sea. The the historical background is that in the late 19th century, Bolivia actually had access to the ocean. They had a war with with Chile, called the the War of the Pacific, and then they ended up not having, they they lost that territory Um. as people lost territory in in those times, or recently. (laughs) <laughs> then, uh, I don't want to bore your, your listeners with, with some historical context, which I think may not be that interesting for them. But one of the grounds that Bolivia was advancing to say that they were entitled to have these negotiations was that Chile had breached their legitimate expectations. And they based this claim on the fact that through diplomatic correspondence and through diplomatic exchanges, Chile had said that they were open to discussing this possibility. They never committed themselves to say, yes, we will give you access to the ocean. They simply said, we're open to talk about this. And, and then Bolivia was relying on that to say, well, you have bre- we have a legitimate expectation. And they tried to draw a parallel between the development of legitimate expectations that has been done by investment tribunals to say that that applies in, in general public international law. 
the, and as you know, legitimate expectations has been one of the key concepts that we have seen and developed in, in international investment law since the tech, TechMed v. Mexico Tribunal has started a trend and then that's been followed by other tribunals as Sorex v. Argentina or the El Paso Tribunal. And, and you see that it has, it's something that has been cut up. It's also played uh, quite heavily in the renewable cases that, that Gloria was mentioning mm-hmm. previously. However, the, the court was quite categorical in shutting off the applicability of legitimate expectations in, at least in general international law. The, the court acknowledged that, yes, investment tribunals make use of this concept. They have been applying it for quite some time now. However, they were quite they strongly held that, at least that Bolivia had failed to prove that the protection of legitimate expectations was an applicable principle in in international investment law. And I believe that this is a that this particular holding will be used by states in defending against legitimate expectation claims. Absolutely. The uh, as we were discussing recently, you're going to try to reach for any method of defense that you can and this is an argument that I see uh, becoming more more relevant. The, the discussion is, admittedly, it was a narrow point. It wasn't an extensive treatment of, of why or why not do this international law recognize legitimate expectations. But I think it could be seen as a way to counterbalance what some people could say the overextension of, of the reliance on legitimate expectations in, in investment law. Ironically, one of the tribunals that recently has done a more nuanced and sophisticated use of, of legitimate expectations is the, the Clayton or the Bilkin Tribunal v. the Award versus Canada, which has Bruno Sima, a former ICJ judge, in it. And I think it's, it will be interesting how it plays out. I don't think that investment tribunals will stop relying on legitimate expectations arguments based on this. I, I don't see that in the future. I think it's, there's enough precedent to say that it's been recognized by you know, the lex specialis or arbitral jurisprudence in, in that field. I also think that the wording of the judgment is ambiguous, ambiguous enough that it will allow tribunals to continue relying on this because they say they recognize that it has been applied by, by investment tribunals. So that opens the door for those tribunals who then say the ICJ has stamped that, has accepted that we can rely on this and we've done so in the past and we will continue doing so in, in the future. And, and I think that's important because especially once you move out of a very strict direct expropriation type of case, Legitimate expectations play a, a key role in determining whether you have an indirect expropriation mm-hmm. or, or whether there's a, a breach of foreign equitable treatment. And, and that's where tribunals have relied on legitimate expectations the most. The other case that I think is relevant is the, the recent Costa Rica v. Nicaragua judgment in which the court addressed the 
issue of compensation for environmental harm. And I think this also dovetails nicely with what Gloria was mentioning, that the, we're having a lot of impetus for reforms of international instruments in which one of the objectives is giving more relevance to environmental concerns and to climate change and to the general responsibility to protect the environment. And uh, again, the, 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 and with all these cases, the, the factual background is relatively complex and uh, the idea is not to burden your, <laughs> your audience with this. Uh, let's just say that the claim originated from a territorial claim over a patch of land that was close to rivers. And one of the claims was that Nicaragua was unlawfully dredging some of the land to create what they call caños, which are basically, uh, I appreciate it that they use the word in Spanish. The, it's basically a, a, a canal or a, a small artificial river, mm. basically. And then the, the court found that that was actually wrongful and that therefore Nicaragua had to pay environmental, had to pay compensation for environmental harm. And this is interesting because there's already been one investment arbitration case in which uh, a claimant has been ordered to pay compensation to a state for environmental harm. And this was the, the decision in Burlington v. Ecuador. Mm -hmm. Ecuador counterclaimed against Burlington that claiming compensation for environmental harm arising out of oil uh, exploitation activities. Right. And, and a tribunal ordered Burlington to pay, I think it was $37 million to, to the state in, uh, as a counterclaim. So that was a few years ago, and now if we have, in, in the whole, I think we're seeing more and more, both in treaty reform and in new treaties, that we have either very, or a lot stricter environmental obligations, or we have environmental carve-outs that allow states to take measures aimed at protecting the environment. And, and insofar, or to the extent that environmental law starts con inserting itself into invest international investment law, into international economic law more generally, I think we will see more instances in which there will be claims relating to environmental harm. And it's interesting to discuss what, what the court did here so they didn't they didn't specify any particular rules for environmental harm they, they the court held that it is a harm like any other harm under international law and state responsibility and therefore that given that restitution is not possible you can't sadly you can't rebuild the ozone <laughs> exactly or uh, start global cooling or, or something like that right. in this case they said well given that you can't undo this environmental harm you must pay compensation. And the, the, the court here then applied the general principles of compensation that it has applied in general for its cases. And it specified, and this was a, a contentious point between the parties, is, was what standard and what method do you use to assess environmental harm? Because it has some complexities and nuances that you won't have, for instance, when, when discussing compensation for the expropriation of a widget manufacturing plant. And the court was very clear to state that public international law does not require the application of a specific method for, for compensation of, of damages when discussing environmental harm. And, and here, 
at least some commentators from the environmental law sphere have commented that there are specific methodologies that could be used. Mm -hmm. And I think this will be when these cases come to to international arbitration. And I think it, it's a matter of when rather than if, when we have mm -hmm. a lot more environmental-related disputes. It will be interesting to see what approach tribunals take to, to assess how to compensate an environmental harm. Uh, and the last case I wanted to address was the ICJ's, this is the oldest decision that I will talk about, is the, the court's 20, uh, 2016 judgment on in the Nicaragua versus Colombia case, uh, the one, there's three of these cases, this is the one talking about the, the limitation of the continental shelf between Nicaragua and, and Colombia. And there's one point of international procedural law which the court dealt upon that I think will be useful or will be relevant and will come to play in, in international investment law and arbitration in, in the future. And it's the, the court's treatment of res judicata. So we have a, some, specific hold, some specific decision on the application of this principle and the extent to which it is applied. And I can also see, given that the resubmission of cases is not completely unheard of in, in, in international investment law, I think this may also wiggle itself into some cases in, in the future. Right. Uh, and to cut a very long and complex story short, basically the court had a previous judgment between Nicaragua and Colombia. And the whole dispute was whether the court's use of the phrase that it cannot uphold one of Nicaragua's contentions meant that the issue was res judicata and could not be brought now in, in this subsequent case. And it's interesting, it was, one thinks international procedural law is straightforward and dull and unexciting, but then this managed to divide the court in half, so it's an 8-8 eight, eight decision that went over with the casting vote of, of the president of, of the court at that time. And basically what the court concluded was that even though usually when assessing res judicata, what you look at is at the, the dispositif of the judgment to determine whether the, the triple identity test, what's called, you know, the identity of parties, of object, and of legal claim was met, what the court did was say, well, if you only look at the dispositif of the previous judgment, you can't really tell whether we decided this issue or not. So what the court did was to look back at the reasoning it had used in the judgment to assess whether the whether the all the claims had been decided. And there was another sub discussion here on whether the one of the reasons why the court didn't decide Nicaragua's claim was that Nicaragua had not complied with a precondition. So they they were making a claim for an extended continental shelf and to do this under the under the law of the sea you usually have to make a submission to the Commission on the Limits of the Continental Shelf. And Nicaragua had not done that at the time of the claim. So some of the judges felt that that was Nicaragua's failure and they had failed to do that before their claim. That's their fault and they should not be. And 
there's uh, a dissenting opinion by, by Judge Joan Donahue where she says well, the fact that Nicaragua failed to comply with that before bringing their claim means that you know, the burden was on them and they did not meet it and procedural fairness would require us to not allow them to do so now after having, several years later after having submitted that, complied with that requirement. And in a way, although this is very factually specific and it's a very sui generis dispute, I think there will be, this may give some grounds for some creative or expansive uses of res judicata jurisdictional arguments in, in investment arbitration. It will be interesting to see what, what comes of that, uh, particularly when we are now entering into um, some scenarios in which you have different types of shareholders bringing in claims and how that may affect or repeat claims arising out of the same, same set of facts. It would be interesting to see what, what happens there. Do you think that investment tribunals are going to be less reticent to use ICJ judgments in their application? I mean, I feel like it's very, that these are two spheres that don't really like to intersect as often. So I know these principles are coming out of these ICJ cases, but do you think that they're going to, the investment tribunals are going to start adopting or being influenced by them? There's a certain tendency to cite the cases, mm -hmm. which does not mean that there's necessarily a tendency to follow what the cases say. Right. And... This, uh, in this uh, article by Professor Pelé, he, he mentions that the, the general mechanism is that you pay lip service to the decision, to the ICJ decision, but then you find a way to distinguish it from the facts of the case and then decide to do whatever you want <laughs> or uh, follow the most persuasive and applicable arbitral precedent as applied to the, the facts and under the applicable treaty. So the answer is, will it be determinative of cases? I don't think so. Will parties rely on them to try to persuade the tribunal of the correctness of their position? I think that's very likely. So Yeah, absolutely. Well, great. Thank you for that rundown. That was interesting. And now the two of you will join Dennis in the third segment uh, to talk about Latin American arbitration. So I don't know if you guys know this, but we call our third segment the happy fun time segment. Okay. So I, how would you translate that into, into Spanish? The happy fun time yeah. segment. Hmm. Interesting. La, la hora feliz, el segment. Yep. Okay. Laura, Laura Feliz. Okay. Y divertida. Y divertida. Y divertida. Which, by the way, <laughs> happy hour is basically happy hour, which means it's like two drinks. Cocktails. Per one. So I, don't, <laughs> I don't know where are the cocktails. Uh, yeah, we usually have cocktails. I, should, I can actually get a bottle of wine no. to be continued. <laughs> uh, so what we're going to talk... So we'll, although we're going to talk about something that is seemingly substantive, talking about Latin America and arbitration, we want to keep this light and airy. Um, so to just kind of have broad brush strokes on where you see Latin America as a region and its role in the international arbitration community. Because I think there is, especially if you're sitting in D.C., it is the dominant factor, but we're all sitting here in London. So I kind of want to know how you guys are seeing it from afar. You guys have now perspective, quite quite big perspective on what's going on. Um, do you think that it is developing... Do you think that it is... in the kind of the forefront of the development of arbitration. You know, you, there was a talk about like five or ten years ago about Brazil being uh, a real front runner in innovation and, and development in the community. But 
do you see the the continent at large being the forefront of the development of international arbitration or do you see it as just a participant or a passive player in in the international arbitration community how do you see the the power of the continent um no well i thought that being latin in international arbitration was a disadvantage sometimes people makes me feel that way uh, because diversity has many dimensions uh, at the same time, I think there is a very good time to be a Latin in international arbitration outside your home jurisdiction and particularly outside Latin America. And you see that with uh, great, great uh, partners who have made their careers either in New York, in DC, some other very interesting law firms have opened offices in uh, Miami and you have mm -hmm. seen some other interesting developments even in California. Um, but I think uh, Latin America historically has always been contributing to the development of international arbitration. It is part of our, most of our civil procedure codes. And then eventually some countries have evolved so much that there are lots of self-standing acts or self-standing laws. You know, we don't have acts in Latin America. We have laws. Mm -hmm. We don't create these things. <laughs> uh, but um, no, I, I, I think it's, uh, Latin America is very important. Uh, there have been many players that have helped us do that. Uh, one of those, I will dare to say, has been the ICC uh, in commercial arbitration. Mm -hmm. But uh, thanks to NAFTA, for example, um, Mexico has played a very important role in the, um, not jurisprudence, but in the investment treaty practice. And um, I don't know, countries, other countries as well. Well, I can only speak ill of Venezuela because I'm a Venezuelan, so uh, that entitles me to have strong opinions. But <laughs> the, I would say for one moment we were the front runners in respondent states in investment cases, given uh, some tendencies to expropriate things without always paying for them. But <laughs> uh, I would say there's been a, a reversal of that trend, and, and we see... A very clear example is Ecuador, because Ecuador had, you know, withdrew from, from the ICSID convention and was terminated some of its BITs. And now there's actually very, a very strong inclination in the part of the Ecuadorian government to say we are keen on re-examining this and reopening this and re-establishing bilateral investment treaties. So the not, see, it's a... It's a region, and if you see historically, it always fluctuates, you know, it's a bit pendular. Yeah. And I'm very confident, actually, about yeah. the present and the future of it. For example, the ICC opened uh, the first office in Latin America, in Sao Paulo. I used to work in the Mexican Center of Arbitration when I was younger. And uh, in 10 years, they had 45 cases. The ICC Sao Paulo office, in one year, they have 40 cases. Wow. Of course, that is, you will say that is domestic arbitration mostly in Brazil, uh, but it's still, it's a great development. Uh, I was in a conference in Brazil in early September, uh, 500 lawyers, at least half of them were young practitioners, I mean, somewhere in their 20s, somewhere in their 30s. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I, I can't see that somewhere else. Uh, it, it is incredible. I mean, all each single jurisdiction by itself, but collectively, 
I think we have been working very hard. And there is also explosion of infrastructure projects, of construction projects, of energy. There is a huge energy revolution in Latin America. Right. Um, so I think there is a lot of work. I always say that a lot of the time we look into Asia, we, of course, with good reasons, we should spend more time promoting international arbitration in Africa. But we should never forget Latin America. There's a lot of work there, yeah. a lot of work, a lot of uh, profit if you are that kind of person, mm -hmm. you know, if you work in a law firm, uh, yeah. I mean. And you also see openness. There is a, a trend toward adapting international standards. There's a lot of the recent legislative developments in, in Argentina and Uruguay in, in recent years have taken steps to make their domestic arbitration laws more aligned with the unsatural model law mm -hmm. and in general to you know be able to play at the level of the big international centers and you see it with not only the ICC open in Sao Paulo which has been a, a great success but also with the development and extension and success that other more local domestic arbitration centers have had. Mm. It's a case of CAM CCBC in Brazil, yes, the, the Lima Chamber of Commerce always also very active, very active. The, the Bogota Chamber of Commerce was also a key player. And, and there is this, I think, a, a drive to make the... I think one could say the region was historically more in the passive side in the sense that it was mm. a place where cases originated. So you went and you had a dispute over a a mineral concession or a you know, mm -hmm. gold mine or an oil field. And now we've, I would like to think that we've transcended that and are now in a position to be more in the offensive and to make changes and to promote certain yeah. ways to operate. So it's, it's now not, not, it ceased being a place where cases arose now to being a, a player in the, in the field. And I think one way to kind of as a benchmark on the development of a certain region is when international law firms open up a branch. Yes. And I feel like in Latin America there haven't been a lot, and maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah. But now I think more and more people are looking to open up an office in Mexico City yeah. or they're open, open up an office in Rio. I, I, don't, I don't, I mean, it was my understanding that in Brazil, for example, you, and I think you had this discussion in, the, in, the, in a podcast before. Uh, you were only allowed. You are only allowed to operate if you are a domestic law firm, right. and you are only allowed to have affiliations or associations with foreign law firms. I think that ha might have changed in Brazil. I'm not sure, but uh, before that was uh, something that hindered the booming of international law firms there. Uh, I can then again. I can only speak about Mexico, but in Mexico, let me tell you that there are excellent international arbitration uh, practitioners and arbitrators. Uh, so, uh, boutique, very boutique, uh, small law firms were the ones doing the arbitration practice, and uh, I am aware, in the last perhaps uh, seven years, uh, white, well, perhaps ten years already, uh, White and Case opened an office. Um, Clyde and Co. open an office. Uh, I, uh, I, it is my understanding that other law firms like Baker Botts or um, Clifford Chance were interested in doing that. TLA Piper opened an office. So Curtis is there. Curtis, well, Curtis was one of the very first ones. Oh, okay. Curtis was, uh, has always had uh, uh, cases, investment treaty cases operating from Mexico City. Curtis, perhaps one of the, f even the first maybe, international law firm. Um, 
so there was a national restriction if you want, but there is also, we are very proud. I think we, we are good lawyers. Uh, so in terms of international law firms, we, we, till some point we didn't feel we needed it. Uh, but now you see that more because you have to partner up with the big players as well if you want to right. have big international cases as well. You might not have the infrastructure. Uh, I also think there's a lot of Latin America focused and very Latin America heavy practice groups mm. that manage that to do that from the US, either from New York, Washington, or even Miami or, or Houston. Yes. Right. And it would not be surprising, it would be common for transactions involving Latin America to be discussed in New York, for instance, particularly when you have, even when you have investors from non American countries, it's like a middle point. Right. middle ground so that that's also a factor and it's the same time zone broadly speaking and, and not right. that far away that you need necessarily to have uh, a presence yes there but it's the same I'm thinking about Buenos Aires in Chile like really every country you think they are very good lawyers they have their own uh, local law firms and they do fairly well very well, I will say. Mm -hmm. North, for example, there was Northern Rose in Venezuela, if I'm not yeah, wrong. We had the first office of Baker and McKenzie outside of the U.S. If it, yeah. You know, the, really? It happens. Uh, yeah, no, I, I, as I say, I think sometimes it's good to be Latin in international arbitration, and sometimes, I don't know, I think it is still hard. Um, there's an issue of diversity, I still think. Why would a Mexican, uh, you know, is in Europe, why would she be the here? Even in academia, in international arbitration. Doing EU law. Doing EU law, <laughs> like this professor told me. I, I think there is still a reluctancy of accepting uh, people. I, I don't know the experience of Manuel, but I do think there is still that. There's still that uh, stone in the shoe, perhaps. I mean, I, I sometimes I struggle. I think, oh, that we need more mentors in international arbitration. Uh, people in La Latins, mentoring other Latins, young Latins, for example. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't, there's not that much of that. Or I think I haven't been that lucky. Uh, but for example, there are very few Latin uh, academics doing international arbitration. And it's hard, it's hard to follow that, you know, when, when you, when you are French and you have all these French uh, figures to follow, I feel that there is a clearer path. But I think for Latins, it's, there is always this, uh, I don't know, I, I feel like sometimes like that. It's also like, I think it's a, maybe a generational thing. I, I, I think it's an important group of people who are, you know, in their early 50s and 40s who have been very successful and have been, you know, opening a path for... Yes. Oh, the region and they've been very successful I think mm -hmm. yeah and it's interesting for example I, I met uh, Gabrielle Kaufman Koller a couple of weeks ago and she told me that specifically she booked a week to go to Paraguay which is you know not random but it's interesting uh, so she went to Paraguay and she met with a big uh, group of uh, young Ica people to encourage them to sign up, of course, for Young ICA, but most importantly, to engage with the young community. And she was pleasantly surprised because she realized there is lots of good uh, lawyers over there. But I had that experience when I used to teach at Queen Mary, there were good uh, students from Paraguay. So 
it is about investing. So you, Latin right. America is also about investing, going there. You see, then again, all these law firms going to uh, Shanghai, to Beijing, to Hong Kong, spending their partners, you know, disappear for five weeks and they stay there and they work very hard over there. It's the same with Latin America. Do you think it's hard now that, you, do you, are you now detached from Mexico or Venezuela that you, there would be no opportunity for you to go back? Or if you're going to become this Latin academic, or I mean, you started in Venezuela, yeah. but do you think it would be a weird experience, or in, or would you find it very difficult to now go back because now you're an international lawyer and they, they, you... not at all, not at all. And actually, the, the I, I, having worked in a local law firm there, you see that there were several lawyers who had spent some years abroad and then come back. It's usually quite fluid in in that regard, and you see it all the time with people who are in with Latin Americans who are practicing in Europe or the U.S. And you see sometimes people say, you know, I, I feel like going home. I've been away for five, six, seven mm. years. And they still <coughs> manage to go back and I think to be quite successful in, in their home jurisdictions. Uh, one thing one of my mentors back home told me was that regardless of the amount of time you spend outside, you'll always be a Venezuelan lawyer. You know, no one is going to rescind your local bar admission right uh by desuetude you know? <laughs> so usually especially if you still have family ties i think for many people it's an attractive proposition and another important change that you you can start seeing it's still starting but it's now starting to be more evident is that now you have merely purely domestic law firms doing some of the big cases by themselves mm. Yeah. And that was, I don't want to say unthinkable, but it was very unusual 10 or 15 years ago. You always had the big players in you know, the France or the UK yes. or the US going and handling those cases. And now you have mm -hmm. cases of, and especially now you have a lot more of intra-Latin American investment. And yes. those may be very, very large. And you have oftentimes you know, only Latin American firms acting in, in those cases. So there's right. also been a build-up of regional expertise that has been capable of doing that. That's true. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I've uh, actually working on an arbitration project with the Mexican government, and that has allowed me to go quite often, um, which is great. Uh, the Mexican government wants to create a new arbitration law, for example, in mm. light of the energy reform. Um, so there is something really interesting which connects back with the other segment about environmental uh, issues and climate change. Um, uh, there is something called social licensing, which basically you go, you invest, but what are your social responsibilities? Mm -hmm. Let's say you're a big energy company and you invest uh, in, the, in Veracruz, you know, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, so these social licensing, the project that I'm working on, is going to include an arbitration clause. And one of the research uh, areas that I'm looking into is which arbitration institution is more suitable for the Mexican market, which is interesting, very, very, very interesting. Um, and then, and or might include a exit type of uh, or, or clause. Uh, but these. This is the way the Mexican government wants to uh, show commitment to dispute resolution internationally. So if you come here and invest, we promise you, you are not going to go to national courts. Right. But along those lines, 
you're going to explore our natural resources and take them and make a profit of it. But will you build, for example, a hospital? Will you build a school? How many of the local people you're going to um, hire for your project? Um, or if there is an environmental uh, issue, how you're going to uh, pay that? Uh, which uh, for social scientists and me, nerds like me, uh, it's called, within uh, the concept of energy justice, there is restorative mm -hmm. justice, which is something in the US, perhaps you are more mm -hmm. knowledgeable more. Uh, but I mean, Latin America is really trying to, to catch up, to, to be innovative, to be friendly, to incorporate uh, practices. I mean, it's not, it's not only what the incredible people over there in Sweden try to do with this uh, project, you know, Treaty Lab oh, project. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I see in this social license example is an intention of the Mexican government trying to include environmental concerns, climate change concerns, um, taking care of indigenous communities while having a friendly dispute resolution clause. And I think that is, uh, I mean, if Mexico is doing it, I'm sure many other countries in Latin America are doing it. I mean, Chile, by example, Chile, for example, was the first country in Latin America that included uh, oral proceedings. So that's not something is within a Latin lawyer. You know, we are very civilist. We, right. we don't learn to speak to the judge. We will never <laughs> do that. But Chile was the first one, and Chile was very successful at having more efficient criminal uh, law procedures. So we are trying to be innovative. We are trying to catch up. Uh, Brazilian lawyers, you know, are always the biggest population of uh, students doing uh, master's degrees on international that's arbitration. Very true. <laughs> uh, and Brazilian lawyers by a big percentage have had more presence in uh, international arbitration law firms. Um, so I, I am hopeful about the future of international arbitration in Latin America. It's, I guess it's the other way around. It is you guys trusting in us and trusting in uh, investing in, in our countries, coming, doing business, uh, partnering up with local law firms, um, inviting us to podcast. You know, it's really about... <laughs> Ma making of the Latins part of the community because you don't you don't treat French or Germans like for the German arbitration practice, right. but somehow we are still the Latin American practice, and I think we should be we should be a genuine part of it. I, I really hope for the time that you know you just see me as an arbitration person rather than oh, the Mexican lady. Right. No, I, I thought about that when I was inviting you guys to this podcast. I was like, am I just, you know, inviting the mascots into this, this, this podcast? But it definitely wasn't that. And that's why the first two topics had nothing to do with it. I mean, yeah. it had an angle to it, but it was just no, the fact it, that we could. It is interesting. I mean, that is real diversity when you don't see that anymore. Right. I think so. Right. Right. What do you think about, because um, I feel like, let's say 10, 15 years ago, in the international community, you would hire a a Latin lawyer in Europe or whatever because you had a case. For example, mm -hmm. if like Eduardo Silva Romero had a case against Bolivia, then he'd hire someone who was Spanish-speaking, right? Yes. Do you think that that competitive advantage still exists? Um, maybe you would probably know that more, uh, Manuel, whether you think that speaking Spanish or coming from that type of background has the same competitive advantage as before, or now, since we are all on the equal playing field, we're all just international lawyers, that it's doesn't really matter as much. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's still relevant insofar as you will have documents 
in Spanish, domestic law and case law in Spanish, and you'll have maybe witnesses that only speak Spanish. So it, it makes communicating easier. Although one positive sign, I think, is that more and more Latin American lawyers are not being pigeonholed as you're only the Latin America person. Right. You only do work in Spanish. So now you're seeing... Recently, someone was mentioning uh, Fernando Mantilla was appointed as arbitrator in a case with Mozambique uh, or Madagascar, an African state with an M. And you see that there's been that... There's been... That, that barrier has been yes. broken, and now you see people acting in cases, you know, Latin Americans acting in Asian cases, that and, and that, that's a good development. And yeah. That's true. I mean, I'm working as an expert on an exit case, and I laugh because it's against an African country, and I never <laughs> imagined I would be doing this. You will expect that I will have an experience of NAFTA cases. Actually, I don't have, I have never worked on a NAFTA case. I've worked on European and African yeah. cases so I, I, I am very proud of that uh, but something very interesting is that because there is a boom of international arbitration practice if you speak Portuguese it is more likely and this has been confirmed by the deputy secretariat of the ICC is that you will have an appointment if because there are so many cases for example in Brazil so that if you speak also Portuguese and you are not from uh, Brazil it's more likely you will be considered, at least, yeah. to be appointed, just because there is uh, over-workload, and therefore your profile matches the requirements, and therefore you are going to be appointed. So also the message is that Spanish is interesting, it's important, but also speaking Portuguese. So for a Latin, I think, feel more and more the obligation that you, we have to speak Portuguese and Spanish to be able to to give you the full menu right. <laughs> of practice. Uh, I don't speak Portuguese, I, I'm trying. Uh, but I, I don't know. I don't know if that has been your experience. Yeah, I, I speak some uh, Portuguese, and I've actually done a lot of Brazil work out yes. of that. It's mm. been very exciting and fun. Now you guys have to be more uh, marketable, <laughs> finding different languages. Yeah. But uh, thank you guys for joining us uh, in this enlightening episode, and um, we can't wait to see you in the international field, not just as Latin lawyers, but as international lawyers. <laughs> thank, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.